Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here today. Well, over the next nine Sundays, we're going to take a deep dive into a measly 11 verses. But if you assume that 11 verses can't possibly give you that much to think about, or if you suspect that my sermon preparation for the next nine weeks will be easier than normal, think again. Because those measly 11 verses come from Matthew 5, and they're more famously known as the Beatitudes. And in just 11 short verses, we read some of the most challenging, comforting, and convicting words that Jesus ever spoke in his time on earth. But before we jump headfirst into the Beatitudes one by one, it might be helpful to begin with a sort of introduction this week. More specifically, it's worth remembering in the weeks ahead that the Beatitudes are just one small excerpt from a much larger passage spanning all of Matthew chapters 5 through 7, with many of the same words appearing in the Gospel of Luke as well. And to get even more pointed, Matthew 5 through 7 isn't just a passage It's an extended sermon from the greatest preacher who ever lived. So this morning, we'll dip our toes into the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. And as we do, we'll learn what life in God's kingdom ought to look like for Jesus's disciples. So open up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But... Before we read, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And Lord, thank you for this year. We ask that you bless our efforts here at this church in the 12 months ahead to glorify you, to build each other up, to love one another, to worship you, to obey you, to love you, to follow you and to make you known to those around us, whether it's our friends or our family, our community, our co-workers. Lord, help us represent you well in this year. And I pray that on this first Sunday morning of 2024, that our worship would be honoring to you, that it would be beneficial for us, Uh, that as we said just a minute ago, um, maybe some of us are In the midst of New Year's resolutions that have gone very well, maybe we've already fallen on our faces, Uh, but Lord, I pray that this morning we'd remember the things that are true year after year after year, not the things that come and go, not the resolutions that fail or succeed, but remember the eternal things uh, that give our lives meaning here and also give us hope and security and peace eternally. And Lord, be with us as we read the Sermon on the Mount, uh, these incredibly challenging words. I pray that you would give us ears to hear, as Jesus so often said throughout his ministry. Uh, Let us have ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning from your word. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Beginning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, 
his disciples came to him. A few simple diagnostic questions should help us begin to wrap our minds around the Sermon on the Mount. First question is, when is Jesus preaching this sermon? When? Well, in the context of Matthew's gospel, this sermon is preached very early in Jesus's ministry. We see Jesus's birth in chapter one. We read the harrowing sequel that is chapter two last week. We see Jesus, now an adult, baptized in chapter three. And then things really pick up in chapter four when Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, begins his public teaching, calls his first handful of followers and performs a few miracles. But even with all of that said, at least in Matthew's telling, this sermon is preached extremely early in Jesus's ministry. The Sermon on the Mount contains Jesus's first extended teaching in this gospel. It's preached before Jesus has any confrontations with the religious leaders. It takes place before any of Jesus's more detailed healings, before any of his miraculous casting out of demons and before any of his well-known parables. Again, Jesus preaches this sermon early in the Gospel of Matthew. And that means that in some ways, this is our first formal introduction to Jesus after he's all grown up. So that's the when question. Question two is, who is Jesus preaching to? Now, verse one may make it sound pretty obvious. He's preaching to the crowds. Duh. But if you take a closer look, it turns out that Jesus's primary audience it's not the crowds. It's his small, newly formed band of disciples. Now, it's true that the crowds are overhearing this sermon. And surely Jesus is aware of their eavesdropping. It's almost like when a child is hiding on the stairs and you intentionally loudly proclaim, gee, I sure hope Javen listened and actually went up to bed. But it's important to note that Jesus preaches this sermon mainly to those already following him. So we have when we have who. And now a third diagnostic question is where is Jesus preaching? Matthew calls it a mountain, maybe a hill. Luke calls it a plain. Perhaps a good way to think about it is a sort of plateau on a gradual mountain slope. But it's also worth noticing that in the Bible, God has a thing for speaking on mountains. He did it with Moses. He did it with Elijah, both of whom will appear on a mountain with Jesus later in the story. And the disciples may not fully understand it yet, but as they sit and listen to this sermon, God himself is once again speaking on a mountain. So with all of that laid out, when, who, and where, 
we have our setting. This is early in Jesus' ministry. He's preaching primarily to his disciples. And he's doing it on a mountain. And considering that this is Jesus' first extended teaching in the Gospel of Matthew, surely he wants to make a good impression, right? And boy, does he. That brings us to the actual content of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, rather than reading every single verse this morning, which I would highly encourage you to do on your own time, we'll break this sermon down into a few main sections. So section one of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' disciples are to live differently than the surrounding world. We are called to live differently than the surrounding world. Picking up in verse 13, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. We get two images here, salt and light. Salt can improve the taste of food, and in a world without refrigerators, preserve food. Meanwhile, light, most obviously, eliminates darkness. But again, in a world without electricity, artificial light was much harder to come by. But if either of these things, salt or light, are not distinct from what's around them, they become worthless. They become pointless. If your salt tastes no different than your food, why even bother putting it on? You're just increasing sodium. And if your flashlight shines no brighter than the surrounding darkness, why even bother turning it on? You're just wasting batteries. Jesus' disciples are called to live differently than the surrounding world. And if we do, namely by obeying the teachings that Jesus is going to give us in the rest of this sermon, then the world will take notice. And you never know. They may just find themselves glorifying God. So that's section one. Section two of the sermon Jesus' disciples fulfill God's law differently. We fulfill God's law differently. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same 
will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day took the Old Testament law extremely seriously. And maybe that began with good intentions. But sadly, as we'll see later in the story, their obsession with their particular understanding of God's law would blind their eyes and harden their hearts against Jesus. However, contrary to many popular caricatures, that doesn't mean that Jesus was a squish when it came to God's law. In fact, in all of the examples that Jesus lists in verses 21 through 48, examples like anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and how we treat our enemies, Jesus ups the ante in them. Now, how does he do that? Well, unlike the religious leaders of his day and age, Jesus emphasizes our internal attitude, motivation, and heart just as much as our external obedience. It's not just murder that's a sin. It's the anger that leads to it. It's not just adultery that's a sin. It's lust in your heart. You shouldn't just treat your enemies fairly. You should love them. Of course, it has to be acknowledged that Jesus' disciples will not obey every commandment of God's Old Testament law, especially when it comes to food laws, the practice of circumcision, or animal sacrifices. If that's how we interpret verses 17 through 20, we're going to have some issues when we read the Apostle Paul, or if we revisit the book of Hebrews that we studied right before Christmas. Jesus' disciples do fulfill God's law, but we do it differently. We do it by faith in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. We do it not just externally, but internally. We do it with our ultimate hope and our ultimate confidence in Christ, the one who fulfilled God's law perfectly in a way that sinners like us never could. The one whose righteousness exceeded that of the scribes and the Pharisees. He accomplished what the law was always pointing to, which we see in chapter 5, verse 48. Humanity being perfect as God is perfect. Or as the book of Leviticus would put it, being holy as God is holy. That takes us to section three of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus' disciples practice a different kind of righteousness. We practice a different kind of righteousness. Chapter six, verse one. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. There are three core, almost universal religious acts that make up what you might call someone's piety, 
And we see them listed in chapter 6, verses 2 through 18. Those practices are giving, praying, and fasting. And those are unquestionably good things, right? I mean, what could possibly be bad about giving, praying, and fasting? Well, those seemingly good practices can become a real problem when we do them not so that people will glorify God, like we saw back in chapter 5, verse 16, but when we do them so that people will glorify us. If we're giving, praying, and fasting just so we can be seen by others and receive worldly praise, then we're hypocrites. We're just actors playing a part for approval, accolades, and applause. But rather than telling us to stop doing these things entirely, Jesus tells us to do them in secret. Sure, the world might not see you pray or give or fast, but that's okay because God will. Section four of the sermon tells us that Jesus' disciples have a different view of possessions, a different view of possessions. Continuing in chapter six, verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Worldly goods are not our main concern, because they don't last Instead, we prioritize treasure in heaven that does last. Now, on the one hand, we shouldn't pretend that this is not an incredible challenge to people like us. We live in a first world country. We go to church in a white collar community. And we are shaped more by our consumeristic and materialistic society than we'd like to admit. But on the other hand, at least in the way Jesus talks about it in verses 25 through 34. Letting go of worldly possessions for the sake of an eternal one can also be liberating. After all, if what we truly value is eternally secure, we have less reason to be anxious, less reason to worry now. In a sense, disciples of Jesus have nothing to lose, and that can be incredibly freeing. There's an old, sometimes debated rule among preachers that you always preach one point. Every sermon should have one primary point that you hammer home the entire sermon. Well, if that's true, Jesus may not have passed the preaching courses at modern seminaries. Because chapters 5 and 6 have already given us way more than one thing to chew on. And then we get to chapter 7. And it gets even more difficult to sum up Jesus' words with cute, 
catchy and clear statements or reduce them down to just one point. Nevertheless, let's move into our final section of the Sermon on the Mount. Section five, Jesus's disciples relate differently to other people and to God. We relate differently to other people and to God. For example, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, Jesus focuses on our temptation to judge others. And while it is always tempting to misuse and abuse this passage, usually to argue that no one should ever dare attempt to hold me accountable for my sin, that's not the point of Jesus' words. The point is that we should be just as aware of our own sin as we are of others. We repent of our sin just as quickly as we expect others to repent of theirs. And we confront others with their sin, not to tear them down, but to build them up. Anything else would be a violation of the golden rule of chapter 7, verse 12. And then in chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, Jesus hones in on our relationship with God, especially as it's expressed in prayer. Yes, we approach God in prayer humbly and reverently, but we also do so comfortably and confidently. Because by faith in Jesus Christ, we can approach God as his beloved children. We can come to God as our good father, who we know gives us good things. So five sections, and we finally come to Jesus's conclusion. And every preacher wants a good conclusion. Verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, but those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them 
will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. I can't possibly do Jesus' words full justice here. There's all that imagery of paths and gates, sheep and wolves, trees and fruit, words and deeds, rock and sand. But I will simply say this. If we take the Sermon on the Mount seriously, we learn that following Jesus is no cakewalk. We learn that life in God's kingdom should be drastically different from life in the fallen world around us. But we also learn that this life is just as beautiful as it is demanding. And best of all, we learn that like that house built on the rock, this life in God's kingdom lasts. But how does all this apply to us? I think it raises a few questions. Do we as disciples of Christ look, think, and feel differently than the surrounding world? Is there anything about our lives that is distinctly Christian? Do we give those around us, those who watch us day in and day out, Reason to glorify God. Are we reflecting God's holiness in our external words and deeds alone by jumping through hoops? Or are we growing in holiness internally as well? In our hearts and minds. Another question is, why do we perform acts of righteousness? Is it to please God or to impress other people? What's our true treasure? Or another way of putting it, where is our true treasure? And how do we relate to others? Whether it be other people or God. I don't have all the answers to these questions. And I don't pretend to offer some easy solution to the timeless challenge that is reading, understanding, and applying the Sermon on the Mount. But I'll say that if we can read these words and not ask ourselves some hard, piercing questions, then we may need to read it again. But I do think there's one more question worth asking, and that's this. Is it even possible to apply any of this sermon to our everyday lives? I ask because it's tempting to read the Sermon on the Mount and go to one of two extremes. The first extreme is that Jesus doesn't actually expect his disciples to live any of this stuff out from the sermon. They're just ideals that we can never realistically hope to apply this side of heaven. In this extreme, Jesus' words really only show us how helpless we are in living up to these standards. Then there's the second extreme. In this sermon, Jesus gives his disciples a list of rules that we must work really hard to obey. And if we don't obey them all, then we must not really be his disciples. 
In this extreme, Jesus' words become just another heavy burden. Well, perhaps a better application of the Sermon on the Mount is to acknowledge how foolish it is to attempt to live up to these teachings on our own while also striving by faith in Christ and the power of the Spirit to embody these teachings in our daily lives, however imperfectly and inconsistently that might be. Because while perfect life in God's kingdom isn't wholly attainable for Jesus' disciples quite yet, we can and we should begin to get a taste of it ourselves and give a glimpse of it to others. And the Sermon on the Mount shows us how. Now, if you feel like you just drank from a fire hose, imagine the disciples sitting on that mountain. For all we know, they're still trying to get a feel for this guy. They just started following and he gives them this. And next week, when we focus on just one short verse instead of three whole chapters, we will be just as challenged as we were today. But if nothing else, I hope our initial response to the Sermon on the Mount is similar to the crowd's response in chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. They were astonished at Jesus' words. And they recognized that there was something different about this guy. The last time someone spoke with this kind of authority on a mountain, it was God himself. And as Jesus' disciples, may there be something different about us too. May we begin to get even just the slightest taste and give others just the quickest glance at what life in God's kingdom is like by obeying Jesus's words. Because one day the crucified and resurrected Christ will return. And in that day, God's kingdom won't be just the subject of an impressive sermon. It won't be just a set of lofty ideals. It won't be just another list of rules. It will be a glorious and eternal reality on earth as it is in heaven. And we look forward to that day. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for who you are, for what you've done for us. Thank you for your word, your church, and your spirit. Thank you that we can come to you as our Father, knowing that you give us good things. Thank you that we can come to you confidently and comfortably, even as we read the Sermon on the Mount and see so many ways that we're inevitably falling short. Thank you that by your grace, by your mercy, you love sinners. And you love us who have placed our faith in Christ, even as we still have so much growth to do, so many ways to mature, so many ways to be perfect as you are perfect that we have not yet gotten to yet. Our righteousness at this point probably doesn't exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees if it's just our righteousness we're talking about, but... Lord, thank you that you are our righteousness, that by faith in you, we can 
ride your coattails to good standing with God. We can be justified. We can be reconciled to God through who you are and what you've done. So, Lord, help us remember that we are saved by your grace. But I also pray that we would embrace the challenge that is the Sermon on the Mount, that we would strive not on our own, but with your spirit's power to live out these amazing teachings because the world needs more people who are following these words, more people who are obeying the Sermon on the Mount. And I pray that all of us in this room and collectively as a church, that we would just even get the slightest taste of what life looks like in your kingdom by obeying these words. So I pray that you'd give us that strength, give us that endurance, give us that humility, give us that obedience that is not natural to us, but that you are cultivating within us by the power of your spirit and with the help of words like the Sermon on the Mount. Again, thank you for this time we've had together to read this sermon. Be with us in the weeks ahead as we take a deeper look at each of the Beatitudes. And I pray that we would be built up and you would be glorified through this study. We love you. We worship you. We thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name.